We have with us today Dr. John Serbel and Dr. Jay Shah. Dr. Serbel is a professor in the Department of Human Health and Nutritional Sciences at the University of Guelph in Canada. His research focuses on the intersection of pain, biomechanics, and neuroscience, with a particular focus on myofascial pain syndrome and trigger points. Dr. Jay Shah is senior staff physiatrist and clinical investigator in the Rehabilitation Medicine Department at the NIH Clinical Center. His research interests include the pathogenesis and pathophysiology of myofascial trigger points and the integration of physical medicine techniques with promising integrative approaches to the management of myofascial pain and dysfunction. Their joint research in musculoskeletal and chronic pain has uncovered new information on how to approach treatment better. We will be discussing aspects of their research and their presentation at the Primus 2023 conference. I also have the effervescent Aditi Bhatt, the producer of the show, with me. My name is Vivek Narayan. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Gentlemen, what we usually do is uh, we start off by asking our guests uh, what it is that attracted them into uh, you know, the sciences or in uh, in certain cases into the medical sciences. Um, but also both of you have a quite a unique uh, uh, sort of history as to why you started working together. So since I introduced uh, uh, Dr. Serbel first, uh, Dr. Shah, I'm going to hand it over to you. Perhaps give us a little bit of, uh, you know, history, background of yourself. Sure. What is it that attracted you to medicine? And then we can switch it over to Dr. Serbel. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So first of all, I want to thank you for the invitation and giving us this opportunity to share um, our clinical and research uh, perspective. And I hope to, we hope to be able to stimulate a lot of thought and uh, excitement about this subject. So I personally have been very interested in the musculoskeletal system going way back to childhood. And I come, I'm originally from India and have family of physicians. So I always had the exposure to medicine. And it just became a very natural fit for me once I got into medical school that I did an internship in physical medicine rehabilitation and absolutely loved it. And um, I've been working now for 30 years at the NIH Clinical Research Center here in Bethesda, Maryland. And for the past 20 years, I've been fascinated by myofascial pain in particular. And I was always interested in the musculoskeletal system, but what really got me interested in myofascial pain was my own pain issues in my lower leg that turned out to be a combination of myofascial pain and segmental or central sensitization, which is the focus of our lecture and the workshop. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Dr. Sobel? Yeah, and my journey started back in 1992 when I graduated from the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College, <clears throat> and I and I began to uh, see a lot of myofascial pain in my practice. I was initially more interested in the sporting aspect of, of chiropractic and sort of moving in that field, but I started getting enamored and intrigued by the uh, the uh, this concept and paradigm of uh, myofascial pain, and and it further enhanced when I began practicing acupuncture. And so what I quickly began to realize that, um, you know, I was getting these really amazing results with patients, but I really couldn't explain it using standard Western biomedical jargon. So I decided to go back to graduate school at the ripe age of 37. And, uh, and uh, here I am, a uh, full-time researcher in, in this field, uh, and, and very excited to be working with someone like Jay Shaw and, and sharing some of the research and ideas that we've developed over the past uh, decade or two. 
and, right. and to go back to your original question, John, you can uh, share your mm -hmm. thoughts. But so we did uh, our group at the NIH, Vivek, did the original microdialysis research where we were able to measure the local biochemicals in the milieu of active or spontaneously painful trigger points. And this lay the groundwork for two really important things. One was to validate the clinical diagnosis because people who are trained to identify trigger points, um, this validates what they do on the physical exam. But then when you look at the coterie of substances that we found, inflammatory mediators, cytokines, neuropeptides, etc., it opens up a whole window into trying to understand the mechanism of pain. And I was reading about some of these things and I was studying them and I came across some of John's papers. And then coincidentally, way back in 2011, I was giving a lecture at the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College and John happened to be in the audience and he asked a question and he said, uh, I've read your work. And I said, I've read your work. And we were kind of going back and forth and we formed a bond and a friendship and a, a a wonderful collaboration uh, ever since then. And John, please add your perspective to it. Yeah, indeed, indeed. It was, uh, it was quite a, a I mean, when I, when I found out that Jay was speaking at my alma mater, I, I definitely made time to go visit him. I mean, he, he, you know, I, I, I had made a point of, at, at some point in my career, I was going to meet this guy one way or another. And it just so happened to be at CMCC. And then we, we struck up a conversation and really it's taken off from there in, in, in ways much greater than I ever thought. And Jay, I value our collaboration and more so our friendship. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. As I was preparing for um, this episode, it sort of seemed to me that, you know, between the two of you, you've sort of captured the bed to bedside sort of paradigm, you know, mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's, it's always a pleasure uh, interacting with such a dynamic duo because you can get, you know, really it's, it's looking at the same coin, but from different sides and, you know, getting a better understanding of both sort of perspectives is, is quite important. Um, and yeah, I well, imagine that is why you're so popular. Uh, yeah. And he your, understands that I'm, yeah. he understands that I'm Batman. He's Robin. So we can get, we can get with the dynamic duo. <laughs> the dynamic duo. Fair enough. Speaking of um, dynamic duos and, and presentations, um, so I believe uh, the, the key lecture that you're giving is, and uh, this is quite the title, but uh, bear with me, the dynamic role of central sensitization and neurogenic inflammation in the pathophysiology of myofacial trigger points and the clinical manifestations of myofacial pain syndrome. So there's a lot to unpack over there. Um, and I know um, our audience is sort of looking forward to understanding you know, what is it that they can learn from, excuse me, from the both of you, but perhaps break that down for us a little bit. Um, and I believe that you have some presentation material for us as well. That yeah. would be very useful. Okay. So this is slightly abbreviated. Uh, for that, by the way, as I said, this was a talk I just gave uh, up in New York State over the weekend. Um, one of the things that we will show you in this lecture is, again, the dynamic role that these myofascial trigger points play. As you can see from this video, um, these trigger points are these hyper-contracted nodules in taut bands of skeletal muscle, and they are a source of persistent bombardment into the dorsal horn, which is that part of the spinal cord where information is being collected from a variety of structures. And one of the things that we can understand is that afferent fibers coming from the muscle, correct, and that's going to lead to more sensitization, more pain, 
And to the point where we understand now that uh, you can change the threshold. And John will be talking a lot about sensitization and threshold. But before we even say any of that, I think it's always helpful to just put into context the work here. And then really the two pioneers were Janet Travell and David Simons. And what they did was so critical. It was really was being able to identify and localize these hyper irritable nodules. And what we'll be teaching in the workshop part of our, our course is how do we palpate the muscle? How do we press on these trigger points? How do we, you know, reproduce their pain? Because that is what an active trigger point is. And so what we understand, what we'll go into some depth is also is the functional anatomy. Again, how you can see here, how the functional anatomy of say the, the rotator cuff muscles and the shoulder. And we'll look at common referral patterns that can exist. But as John will explain, that once someone is sensitized, those pain patterns can expand, those receptive fields can get larger and larger. So one of the things I wanna emphasize here is that the source of bombardment, as you ask about Vivek, is coming from potentially from the muscle, and that's gonna hit the dorsal horn. It can also be coming from a visceral organ. And so this concept of somatovisceral and viscerosomatic interaction occurs in the dorsal horn and very specifically at this one neuron called the wide dynamic range neuron. And the reason this is so important from a clinical perspective, whether you're a patient, and especially if you're the clinician, is to understand that 60% of our wide dynamic range neurons are located right in that lamina, which is lamina five right here. And the reason that's one of the lamina that is preferentially being activated by muscle. And this is why muscle can refer pain to the viscera, viscera can refer pain back to the muscle. So we are, John will also discuss about this concept of the chicken or the egg. When you see a patient with pain, right? And is their pain coming from the endometriosis? Uh, is it there? Or is the endometriosis been treated? The lesions have been removed, but they still have pain. Why? Because they may have active trigger points and that these trigger points have been activated by the visceral bombardment. So this is the concept. And I'll just say one last thing here, and that you can appreciate that on physical exam, not only do we palpate for trigger points, but we look, and we'll teach this in the workshop, everyone, we teach the importance of looking for signs of allodynia, which you can see here, to a pinch and roll test, a simple pinch and roll test, or looking for hyperalgesia using a pinwheel. And then we will focus treatments, whether they're in the periphery at the trigger point or paraspinally using electrical stimulation, acupuncture, needles, etc. Anyway, I'll stop and let John um, chime in or Vivek, if you have any questions. Before we uh, before we go over to Dr. Serbel, uh, just for the for the lay audience members or, or those of us who aren't in the uh, medical or the scientific uh, community, uh, what you described to me about uh, 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 different, I'm just going to call them inputs coming in. It sounds to me like it's a bit of a, uh, it's like there's multiple roads that are coming into this uh, a roundabout or so, and then somehow they, there's a bit of a traffic jam. Is that a, is, is that a fair analogy to me? Absolutely. Yep. Yep. A traffic okay. jam. And then you can say, well, then this miscommunication can start happening um, in terms of signals going in different directions and misperceptions. Uh, about what is the source of the pain. We feel the pain somewhere, 
right? But that doesn't mean that's the source of the pain. That's what's very important for the lay person to understand, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, Dr. Serbal, over to you. Yeah, so I mean, I can, um, I can expand on some of these concepts, actually, uh, simply in terms of my journey. Um, <clears throat> in, in clinical practice, what I started noticing is I was treating uh, myofascial pain patients and trigger points specifically <clears throat> was that they, they didn't actually behave like local injuries. So the, the, the current uh, school of thought or at the time was, was that a trigger point and therefore subsequently myofascial pain formed as a result of, a, uh, of some sort of local injury, a mechanical injury to that muscle. The problem was, and if I can share my screen. So basically what I started noticing was that, um, you know, as I was treating these myofascial trigger points, as you can see here on the right, uh, they were behaving quite differently than, uh, than that of an acute local injury. And, and one of the most important things to, to recognize neurophysiologically is that pressure on the trigger point does not induce a withdrawal reflex that would normally be induced by pressure to an acute local injury. And so at this point, I started to really question whether injury was an important mechanism in, in the pathophysiology of myofascial trigger points. And so as I proceeded into my PhD, uh, you know, the question I was really armed with was, so what are these other patho pathophysiologic mechanisms that might be contributing to the pathophysiology of trigger points? And so this one study by Ustinova demonstrated, they, they did this in rats, where they experimentally induced colitis. And within two days, they saw an increase in, in an inflammatory response within the bladder, as well as a twofold increase in the mechanical sensitivity of the bladder. And what they attributed this to was to a neurogenic inflammatory mechanism that was triggered by central sensitization. So as Jay just explained, they induced the colitis, created a sensitized state in this segment, and then created by some mechanism, and we'll talk about, they created a neurogenic inflammatory response. And so my question was then, does it really matter? In the case of myofascial pain, does it really matter where this primary pathology resides and where this neurogenic inflammatory mechanism is expressed? And could, the, could myofascial pain and the trigger point simply be the physiologic expression then of neurogenic inflammation within somatic tissues in the absence of injury. And so this is where we presented uh, or published our uh, neurogenic hypothesis, which basically states that myofascial pain is the manifestation of neurogenic inflammation uh, that arises from inputs from a distinct primary pathology. And I've got a few slides here that kind of outline this, this paradigm that Jay and I have been working on. Uh, so we have a segment here with two unmyelinated uh, nociceptors, afferent fibers, if we introduce a pathology within the receptive field of this green fiber, we create, as we did in the Istanova study, we create a sensitized state. If it's allowed to persist, we create a primary afferent depolarization mechanism that creates a dorsal root reflex. And what that effectively does is this, it antidromically releases neuroinflammatory peptides, substance P and CGRP into the periphery. And so here we create this inflammatory response within the muscle. Similarly, the hypothesis suggests that once we sensitize the dorsal horn, we can also, through interneuronal pathways, activate motor neuron excitability, as well as uh, 
preganglionic sympathetics at the intermediate horn. And then it is the coexistence of these three pathways that can create this myofascial trigger point region in the absence of injury. And so using this model now, we can begin to explain some of these clinical uh, uh, manifestations that Jay just talked about, um, including uh, chronic pelvic pain syndrome and other non-musculoskeletal conditions that are clinically associated with myofascial pain. So clearly in those states, there's no injury to the muscle, but they're presenting with myofascial pain because the primary pathology, in that case visceral, is creating the sensitized state leading to the dorsal root reflex. So I think that's kind of the theoretical framework that we're working with as we advance this, this paradigm. So this is quite fascinating because at, at some level, you know, uh, if I feel pain and then someone tells me, you know what, there's an area that is being sensitized, um, one would almost imagine it to kind of be like, if, it, if it's a self-protective mechanism, perhaps it's, oh, well, maybe I should be ignoring the pain. But I think what's, what, what you're suggesting is that we are becoming more sensitized uh, and there's other sort of regions that are being co-opted. And it's almost like uh, a mechanism that's saying, hey, you, human, you've been ignoring this for such a long time. I'm going to make it even worse so that you're paying attention to it now. Is that a good way of, like, I know that none of us are evolutionary biologists over here, but mm -hmm. is that a way of thinking about it? Or is this, am I off uh, completely? Yeah, I, and if I can answer quickly, and then I'll pass it over to Jay. Uh, the fact that it doesn't induce a withdrawal reflex, Vivek, is, is exactly the point, that we don't really understand what the actual benefits of this are, other than its central sensitization is a foundational mechanism to learning. For learning, memory, and, and right? learning, yeah, memory, learning, and also um, the pain experience. So um, it, it is, you know, pain is a warning sign initially, but what happens when it persists uh, in the absence of injury, then it no longer serves as a useful. So you could say, yes, we're evolving, but we haven't evolved to the point where we shouldn't be having this. But John, if you don't mind, Vivek, and also I, I think this might be helpful now for me to go back to myofascial pain as it relates to the clinical uh, part. So if I could share a screen. So again, just to emphasize, when a patient comes in complaining of pain, what we're going to do is we're going to try to identify if they have a myofascial component to their pain. And as I said, we've done these microdialysis studies and we've seen elevated levels of all these biochemicals, including a more acidic pH. And the reason this is important is because these biochemicals by themselves or collectively can sensitize the spinal cord. But just before the spinal cord is this structure called the dorsal root ganglion, which is releasing neuropeptides. And that's the substance P and the CGRP in two directions. So when it's going towards the cord, it's going to cause more central sensitization. And that's going to cause the changes in allodynia and hyperalgesia. But over 60% of these biochemicals are being released antidromically, which means Vivek, they're going down back the axon where they came from. In this case, it originated from this trigger point in the muscle, right? Now, I want the audience to understand, both the, the lay person as well as the, the, the clinicians, that, that that information is coming from a nerve, right? In this case, it's a nerve innervated by the C6-C8 segment. This happens to be what's called a long thoracic nerve. That doesn't matter. But the point I want to make here is it will sensitize not just the trigger point, 
but the myotome. So now any tissue that's innervated, any muscle tissue that's innervated by C6, C8 can become tender. So certainly your latissimus dorsi, but uh, the physicians will know that your, your, uh, your triceps muscle is also innervated by that segment. It will sensitize the skin over that area, which is the dermatome. And very interestingly, it can also sensitize what are called sclerotomal structures. So what are that? That is things like ligaments, tendons, the insertion of the, the muscle into the bone, which is called the anthesis, right? The, the bursa. And so what I like to emphasize is that here, what you see in the lower left-hand corner are what appear to be degenerative changes that occur to all of us as we age. And the immediate assumption that patients and as well as many clinicians make is that, oh, you're having pain there because of those degenerative changes. But I and John would argue, well, those have been there for 5, 10, 20 years. What has changed now to cause the pain? Could it be that they're sensitized? And this can happen in the skeletal, the structures as well as in the, the in the in the the uh, yeah the skeletal the the spinal structures as well as the peripheral skeletal structure in this case the C six C eight segment I'll stop there in case you have any questions but this is important because it relates to myofascial pain because of what John just talked about the neurogenic hypothesis and the fact that we see elevated levels of these two neuropeptides in active trigger points they only come from one place which means that neurogenic inflammation and C-sense is occurring here. A um, lot to digest over here. Um, it, it seems to me that um, this obviously is then going to work throughout the spinal cord, right? So would it be fair to say that if I have, you know, maybe it was an, an old knee injury at some point, which may have healed, but then now the rest of my leg, because it's been innervated by the same uh, uh, myotome, dermatome, uh, and sclerotome, yep. it's the entire leg now is hurting for whatever reason. and that's exactly right. And that gets at the way we approach this from a treatment perspective. It's a fantastic question. So let's say you do have, I think John has the classic example in one of his slides, that you do have this knee pain or osteoarthritis that is treated successfully. However, the arthritis has caused sensitization, at least at L3, L4. It can go extra segmentally. That's what these lightning bolts are kind of meant to signify, that you can have extra segmental spread of information. And as a result of that, information can you can have a mirror image pain you can have you know extra segmental pain so yes you're absolutely right so that's why we in our workshop will emphasize not only treating what we think is the source of the bombardment but treating the sensitized segment and if there are changes in the higher brain structures then you have to utilize you know biofeedback and relaxation and meditation cognitive retraining and all those things. So that's where you can really see the complexity of this, but we're trying to show it in a way that is digestible for people to understand the mechanism. John, do you want to add something? Yeah, and I, I think, Jay, you basically addressed the point that I wanted to make in response to Vivek's question earlier about the, the biological relevance of this, right? I mean, the fact that it doesn't have, it doesn't produce, this type of pain doesn't produce a a nociceptive withdrawal reflex, it's not, quote, protective. So what does it do? Well, it, again, you'll, you'll find that a lot of these conditions, as they progress to the chronic stage, they become generalized because they begin involving supraspinal structures. So descending pain pathways and pain inhibition pathways. Jay talks a lot about the limbic system and so on. 
Like right, right here, so this what is, ends the, up happening, is the pathway that you're talking about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, you've got some great slides on that. But the point is, I mean, when we look at the biological relevance of this, and, and, and all of us tend to as clinicians, and, you know, we're, we're looking for the, re, the why question, uh, what ends up happening with these patients is they slow down. So like Vivek said, I mean, if we're not going to deal with the pain initially, if, we, if we're stubborn enough or refuse to, this could advance to the point where the physiology maladapts or the nervous system maladapts um, as soon as the supraspinal structures are involved and it begins to slow down. And you see this with chronic pain patients, depression, anxiety, you know, a lethargy, brain fog. These are classic clinical signs and symptoms of, of a chronic pain patient. So, so again, it's an interesting phenomenon uh, that we have yet to answer all of the questions. It seems to me that, you know, um, what you're, so uh, what you were describing about, you know, symptoms related to chronic pain, uh, enduring chronic pain, brain fog, depression, those sorts of things. I mean, the situation has progressed to uh, a degree that, you know, obviously one, there, there is an impact that one can make, but really, um, you know, the intervention should have been done much earlier. Um, can, can, uh, uh, could you describe perhaps some of the screening or some of the heuristics that you know clinicians could use to better identify patients before they reach that stage where uh, I'm not saying it's difficult to come back from, but it's certainly a, a, a tremendous sense of morbidity that could have been avoided to a large degree. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you know, I, I personally feel that the, the human body is remarkably resilient, and under normal circumstances, it has restorative reparative mechanisms and i think something what we're doing is almost trying to identify those switches that we want to flip and meaning in the periphery in the spinal cord and in the brain as well because there's this you know we want to sort of return to the homeostatic state and the body wants to get back to that so unless there's a you know obvious changes or or disorders or disease and immune function, endocrine function, et cetera, then for the most part, many of these patients are very, very amenable to the different treatments that we're talking about. Why? Because it, it, it is almost like a, um, a, a, an abnormal sort of a, a resting state and you're just trying to restore it. I, I want to use this real quick because I don't want to, this opportunity to pass. Um, how do we explain this to our patients? Like, and I think I said this to you when we met the first time, Vivek, where they're complaining of pain in their knee and their wrist and their ankle. And John and I are looking at spinal segments. We're trying to understand what's happening in the spinal cord and all these. And I, I say, look, look at this as an analogy. You have a three-story house. On the third floor, there's a room on the, on the end of the hallway where the light is no longer turning on. So what do you do? Well, you've changed the light bulb. If the light bulb works now, if the switch, you turn the switch on, the light comes on, then you know the problem was local. If it doesn't, where do you go? Circuit box, right? So in some ways, the spinal cord, the spinal segments are analogous to the circuits, the segments that we're trying to connect and identify that, um, uh, are associated with their pain and dysfunction. And what I want to emphasize right here to extend this analogy is that there are many things that could have caused those circuits to short circuit. And it could be things that are directly proximate to their current pain complaint, or what you said earlier, Vivek, they could have had a knee injury that might've been treated five, 10 years ago. And 
they're, they, they were left sensitized and now you just introduced a new uh, overload. And if they hadn't been sensitized, that overload could have been, uh, been tamped, you know, tamped down, but now it's being expressed as pain. Does, does that make sense, John and Vivek? Does, does John, you want to add something to that? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, to, to, you know, add to this, Vivek, the, the, the best model for this transition from acute to chronic is whiplash. So you, you'll see these patients coming in initially, and they'll point to the pain like this with one finger. It'll be very lo well localized, well demarcated. That's a musculoskeletal or musculoskeletal in Jay's case. Hey, no, tomato, tomato. it is musculoskeletal. <laughs> <laughs> musculoskeletal up north of the 49th. Yeah, so, that, so, so that's an acute pain. Okay, but then if you allow this to remain, and you'll see this in these patients, if you don't address the inflammatory response within, you know, three to four days, the pain begins to spread. And then if you leave that a further two, three, four weeks, it generalizes. And, and, and many of these people go off work and they're, they're you know, they, they develop this chronic widespread pain syndrome. So that's a great model to use. But, but I think, in, in, you know, to answer your question about how we deal with this, we, we need to identify the primary pathology. If we go back to that, uh, you know, that diagram that Jay's shown and I've shown with the, with the uh, fibers converging onto the same segment, clearly there is a primary. If you have an, a, a trigger point or myofascial pain in a specific myotome, necessarily there has to be a primary pathology driving that sensitization. Okay, so it might be it might be uh, visceral, as in the case of uh, chronic pelvic pain that Jay has shown with his work. Uh, it could be somatic as well. It could be a chronic disc. In my in my clinic, it was a lot of it was chronic disc and osteoarthritis that I found drove myofascial pain. And I have since shown that using an animal model, where we surgically induced osteoarthritis, and I've shown a, a neurosegmental response in the muscle. So OA to me, chronic degenerative disc disease was, was a, a big one for me. But that's the key, I think, is identifying the primary pathology, treating it early. If we go back to the Ustinova study, if they addressed the, col uh, the, the colitis early, they wouldn't have seen that inflammatory response in the bladder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, but to add to what, what you just said, John, and what Vic's question was, what if you don't get to them early? Right? What if they're now sensitized? And my point was that we don't, none of us know that we're sensitized because this is where the misperception comes in. And so the way we're hardwired is that if you start to develop pain somewhere, you think that's where the source of the pain is. So you might think, oh, you know, yeah, I was typing too much or I was shoveling snow, and that's probably why I'm having pain in those various structures. But it could be that just what has happened is your thresholds have been lowered because of some previous sensitization. And what John and I will show in the workshop is that we can change the pain pressure threshold. And John will bring the what's called quantitative sensory testing instruments. And Vivek, we can actually just do with electrical stimulation, we can treat the segments, or we can needle and we can show we don't even touch the trigger point, we don't touch the joint, but we can raise the threshold, we can normalize it. And I think that's a very powerful message. John, do you want to add anything to that? If I can add, yeah, an important point. You talked about whether if we leave it, one of the risks that occurs uh, from a clinical standpoint is we get phenotypic changes then in those neurons. So if we look at the, what's going on at the membrane level, we've got different types of receptors that are activated. Jay has a series of slides that really goes describes this well. But if we allow this uh, primary pathology to keep 
dumping substance P and CGRP into the dorsal horn, eventually what we see are phenotypic changes in these neurons, okay? And, and again, that's, that's how a memory forms, a memory pathway. We get potentiation of these pathways. However, obviously too much is no good and we get develop these chronic pain conditions. Um, you know, so, so this pain memory concept is really a function of these mechanisms that have gone swung too far to the right. Right. And, and now the question is, can we reverse it? Yes. Jay describes needling. We, we, I've done needling as well. We can reverse this temporarily, but there's no evidence that we can cure it. In other words, bring that neuron back to its original state. These patients are always going to be hypersensitive to smaller intensity or smaller amplitude uh, inputs. Right, Jay? Yep. And, and also and you can use manipulation too, right? You've done You've spinal shown manipulation. That spinal manipulation, yeah, can right. Yeah, same is, mechanism. Is there a is there an understanding of you know if if patient X or all patients like patient X uh, have been experiencing chronic pain for I'm making it up right now you know five years or ten years, there's phenotypical change that at some point become irreversible. Uh, is there any uh, literatures that suggests that's the case, or it's still a question that we just don't know as yet? The answer so to which we to don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I was trying to communicate that. So you've articulated it much better than I did. Uh, I, I don't know of any uh, papers out there right now that actually show, and even through clinical practice, um, you know, I've noticed, you know, just anecdotally that once a patient, you know, gets to that phenotypic change where they're hypersensitive, they've developed this pain memory. Yes, we can reduce sensitization through ongoing care, but uh, there's no evidence, certainly in the scientific literature, that we can restore it back to its normal state. Yeah. But, you know, I think that that's a good point. But I think to your question, Vivek, it's also what John had emphasized. It's not just about the pain, but it's also about improving function. So if you can improve function, which which we which we feel was is you're able to do by reducing pain, by reducing sensitization, by normalizing these muscle spindle reflexes, all these things, then um, you help people cope with the pain better. And 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 I and 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 you know you're you can you can you you can improve mood, you can improve outlook, you're restoring hope. I think those are all powerful things that help to ameliorate the pain. Um, and so I think that that those are important considerations as well. Absolutely. Um, switching gears a little bit, it, it seems to me, and hopefully we are in the post-COVID phase of, of our recovery from the pandemic, but um, it seems to me that there's a, a, an overlap between, you know, what some people would say is long COVID or post-COVID sequelae when it comes to, um, uh, there, there seems to be an overlap between chronic pain and, and post-COVID sequelae and long COVID and those sorts of things. Is that something uh that you're seeing in your practices as well is there is this now like is this adding to the confusion that already exists or have we been able to develop uh, clinical protocols to be able to say you know what no this is quote unquote either being exacerbated by uh let's just call it long covid or is it just leading to more confusion uh you know i have not because of where i work i'm not seeing covid patients in in our our practice here. So I can't comment directly on that. What I would say is that in general, whether you've had COVID or not, certainly people are more have been more sedentary <laughs> for, for a good bit of time. And we know that lack of movement, lack of motion, uh, lack of exercise, 
lack of, you know, stretching, all those things can, can certainly contribute to uh, constraining your musculoskeletal and myofascial system. So, and just in general, I would always recommend that people be doing, you know, exercise and stretching and yoga and, and taking frequent breaks from their workstation because, you know, that's some, one of the side effects of being in this remote state for so long, for years, right? Where people's, um, degrees of freedom, if you want to call it that, <laughs> have been reduced. Yeah. John, what do you, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I don't practice uh, full-time. I'm, I'm full-time here at the university now, research. Uh, so I don't practice. Uh, I haven't seen any uh, sort of uh, long COVID. But but I think there's the biological plausibility of, of it impacting, again, uh, at the membrane level, right? So we're talking about membrane dynamics. Um, so that, that's probably one of the mechanisms and, and it's actively being studied, of course, because it's such a common sequela. So I'm, I'm, I'm very curious and interested to see how these studies, uh, turn out. Mm -hmm. So, uh, sort of summarizing what I've heard, um, uh, it's, it's better to see or seek care earlier than later. Um, you know, we have, uh, uh, a tendency, perhaps some of us do at least, to uh, ignore pain, especially when we're working out. I mean, uh, uh, you know, we probably shouldn't be pushing ourselves as much as, as we do sometimes. And uh, I think uh, something, Dr. Silver, that you said kind of stood out in my mind is, you know, if I can point the pain, uh, the moment I can stop pointing to pain is probably the time that I should be thinking about. If I've ignored it till then, I should probably say, you know what, uh, if I can't, localize it anymore than there's something that's going on, which I should then, uh, would that be a good sort of, uh, uh, heuristic for patients who are listening in onto this, or is there something else that, you know, what is that red flag that should go off in your head and say, you know what, I absolutely now need to see someone. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, and, and we, Jay and our group actually extensively talks about this because we're looking at biomarkers now, but a lot of, uh, you know, again, acute versus chronic pain, uh, um, you know, there's a big difference in the clinical presentation, right? Acute is well-localized, well-demarcated, sharp stabbing type of pain. Pressure on it induces a withdrawal reflex. The chronic pain is complete opposite. It's poorly defined, diffuse, deep, achy, and pressure on the trigger point actually evokes a deep, dull, achy uh, phenomenon that patients call, quote, good pain. They want more. That's actually what really triggered me initially is when I was doing manual therapy, is that I found that patients actually wanted more pressure. And I'm, I'm thinking like, this is not behaving like an acute injury. So, so really, I think that, like you said, that at the moment that pain begins to spread, if you experience that quote, spreading pain, that is a sign of sensitization. Yeah, and, and of lowering of thresholds. That's the other big one. Yeah, if, if they suddenly, yeah, if they suddenly are now more responsive or, uh, more, they have more tenderness in certain tissues. But the other thing I think is so important to mention here is that this this three to six months uh, of definition is quite arbitrary, right, John? It, you can certainly develop and elaborate all the mechanisms within certainly within weeks, sometimes within days um, of what's going to be essentially a, a chronic pain pattern. So to your point, Vivek, the sooner the patients uh, are assessed. Um, come in for evaluation, the, the, the better, the sooner they can, the more successfully they can be treated, both, um, you know, pharmacologically, from our perspective, non-pharmacologically, because you should be able to treat this non-pharmacologically. 
Yeah, the other thing I'd be concerned with clinically is if I'm treating a trigger point or myofascial pain, let's say through dry needling, patient gets relief two to three days and then it comes back. And so you get this sort of phasic response in the clinical profile. And what that telling me is that, yes, like Jay was describing, we can through needling desensitize a segment. But if the pain comes back, clearly it's suggesting that there's an underlying, perhaps occult uh, pathology that's driving this. So like I said, in my case, subclinical, it doesn't even have to be clinical, subclinical discopathy can lead ultimately to sensitization. And I've got some interesting data from my own lab that shows the changes that occur even with a very mild, mild experimental sensitization model in humans. So it doesn't have to be um, clinical. It could be subclinical pathologies. The other take-home message would be for the physicians is to recognize that, like what John said, if you treat the trigger point and that either the pain or the trigger point keeps coming back, then you have to ask yourself, well, this doesn't sound like the chicken. This sounds like the egg. So then we need to go back and try to investigate, okay, where could there, what could be the source? And many times, Vivek, the patients help us because they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, I happen to have peptic ulcer disease. I've, I've been taking medication. Maybe now the medication is not working if most effectively, and now it's sensitizing the spinal cord, and now they're developing myofascial pain as a result of that. So like he said, John said, it could either be something subclinical or something that's being suboptimally managed from a medical perspective and is having a myofascial manifestation now. I, I, yeah, if I can show some data that can hammer this point home. Okay, so this is a slide that was funded. We, we conducted... Um, this study actually funded by the Canadian Arthritis Network. And, and what we did here was we had this contraption set up where there's, uh, the patient was uh, strapped to a force transducer. And so what they did was they uh, used the pointer finger and they pushed against a force transducer here. You can't really see it clearly. And so that activates the uh, first dorsal interosseous muscle, which is innervated by C8T1. Okay, and so what we did was we dropped two electrodes into this muscle to measure the motor unit, single motor unit activity in the muscle. And what we did was we, we examined this pre and post experimental sensitization. So the way we evoke experimentally in my lab, the way we evoke sensitization is applying topical capsation or Zostrix cream, which activates the uh, unmyelinated fibers. And what we did was we activated or try to sensitize the C8T1 segment by applying it to the C8T1 dermatome as illustrated here. In fact, we did it bilaterally to optimize the, uh, the sensitization effect. And what we found was, and I think you might find this interesting, is, um, so here's two tracings. Up, up here we have pre-sensitization, and down here is post-sensitization. And this is the force tracing. So the poles were reversed, so this is increasing force. So as the patient is pressing or activating the first dorsal neurosius, we're seeing an increase in force. And what you see here is a progressive increase in the motor unit activity, right? So you can see here, larger motor units kicking in, frequency increasing. This is the standard Henman size principle uh, recruitment. Now, what we see post-sensitization, I mean, it's quite obvious. You can see what's going on here. Same idea, increasing force, but we see much larger motor units kicking in and a much higher frequency response. You can see here that this motor unit pool seems much more excitable than this one. And I'm not sure that you can see these the scale here on both sides, but this peak here 
is about half of this one. So we're, we're somewhere around here. So we're working in this window somewhere here. Okay, but the point being is that you can see very quickly that this motor unit pool is significantly excited. And this is using a very mild transient sensitization model. Again, topical capsation, which I would uh, make the analogy to a subclinical type of condition. It was mild and it was transient really for about 15, 20 minutes. So I think this is an exciting sort of, you know, data set that really shows that why well, I was able to alter the excitability of that motor unit pool simply by applying a topical, very mild, what I would even call subclinical sensitization model. So that speaks to this idea of, you know, again, if you have a trigger point, if you identify it clinically, then, then, you know, that to me became a sign that there was a pathology somewhere in that neuromeric field. Right? And so if I, even if I couldn't find it initially, and if it kept repeating and coming back, like we got this phasic response, that could be a sign of an occult. It could be a tumor. It could be other things that are persistent, right? Which Jay talks about. So that's, I think, an important clinical tidbit. Yep. That's, uh, uh, I, I think sort of seeing it laid out like the way you showed it is quite, it's quite telling actually. Um, and at some <laughs> level, like once you've understood the, the, the model, uh, it's almost like, I don't want to say it's simplistic, but it's like quite a neat yeah. experiment. So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and if you don't mind, can I just show something else? We'll drive it home even more powerfully for the lay audience. I think that's, that's uh, okay. a great idea. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Let me just share again. So uh, we're having John and I are having dueling slide sets going here, right, John? <laughs> yes. I mean, it is the dynamic duo. So I think this is brilliant. Dynamic duo. Yeah, the, the, not the duo, not duo. I, I cherish my role as Robin. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. All right. So what what this gets at, um, gentlemen um, and Aditi, is this, is this concept that he was talking about, which is this spinal, what's called spinal facilitation. So what John mentioned was that, yeah, the trigger point could be the source of the bombardment and it could sensitize the dorsal horn, which is what we talked about earlier, leading to changes in perception and thresholds. But what John just introduced now was that it can affect the ventral horn and the reason this is important is because this is where for the physicians your anterior motor neuron is located but for the lay person this is where the um how your muscles are innervated so this input coming in from a sensory organ can affect a muscle okay i'll show it to you in a, in a, in a bit in more detail but it can also affect what's called the intermediate or lateral horn and the reason this is important is because this will activate your sympathetic nervous system. So this can activate, can cause ischemia, hypoxia, etc. And then number three was discovered uh, serendipitously, which means, you know, by accident, but it was a fascinating observation that every time that they depolarized the dorsal horn, they noticed that electrical signals were not just going in, but were coming out going back out. Why is this important? Because this will increase the neurogenic inflammation. So that will cause more tenderness in the trigger point. And to John's point and to your question earlier, we know, we know that there are mechanisms to allow this to occur both unilaterally and bilaterally. And I'll show you in the next slide set uh, sets is that this can occur multi-segmentally. 
So you could have something start out at one level and now is going to the opposite side, creating changes in perception, in muscle activation, uh, in autonomic, the ner sympathetic nervous system dysfunction, both ipsilaterally and contralaterally, and it can go multi-segmentally. So let me just put the picture together for the lay audience. Let's say you have a patient, or let's say you uh, are the patient who has arthritis in your facet joint. So this is one of the joints um, in your spine, and this is coming in at L3, L4. So it will sensitize the dorsal horn. So that will cause changes um, and will also sensitize the anterior motor neuron. So that will cause changes in what John was just describing, which is the myotome. So you lower the threshold by now, which these muscles will start to fire. They'll develop reflex muscle spasm, potentially trigger points. So this is L3, L4 innervated muscle in the back. And this is in the, the, the rectus uh, femoris muscle in the leg. And John talked about the dermatome. And so the skin over that area that's innervated by that segment will have allodynia, will have hyperalgesia when you use a pinwheel to test it. What I talked about was the sclerotomal structures. So this is an example. This is a bursa, right? So, so many patients who might have had their bursitis or tendinitis treated with an injection, but the pain didn't get better. Why? Because it's very likely that this was not a local inflammation. This was a sclerotomal manifestation of segmental sensitization coming in from the spine. You see? Now you can appreciate that in this case, the source was the joint, but just as easily to John's point, the source could be a trigger point. So the, uh, let's say you, you have a patient who first starts with an overuse. Let's say they're a soccer player and they overuse this muscle. Now that trigger point is, uh, is an active trigger point. So it bombards the dorsal horn and if it becomes chronic, you can lead to sensitization. So then the, the pain and the joint or all these other manifestations can be secondary to this. And just as likely, it, the cause could be visceral. It could be endometriosis. So you can see, again, this concept of the chicken or the egg. So just to finish this, and I'll let you take over, is the source could be visceral, right? In which case, you see all these changes we described, and then the manifestations are due to persistent sensitization. And this is what I want to emphasize here, what's called extra-segmental spread of information going up and down your spinal cord. And so now you can develop trigger points, you can develop... Uh, tenderness and other skeletal structures um, as a result. So it's a chicken or the egg. So that's where, like you said, Vivek, it's important for patients once they're starting to develop, you know, more persistent pain and it starts to spread. And if, especially if they've had other musculoskeletal problems or visceral problems in their history, it's good now to understand this concept and say, could they be sensitized? Now I need to be evaluated. I went along quite a bit, but hopefully this answered some of the questions. No, this is uh, this is quite comprehensive, and I'm I'm wondering, um, uh, you know, would participants of of, of the conference uh, will they be be uh, exposed to this material, uh, whether in the form of the uh, lecture or in the form of the workshops? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. The workshop will really delve into it in a lot of detail and it'll really be hands-on. And John, if you'd like to talk about some of the quantitative sensory testing, I think the audience, the, 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 the physician audience participants would be fascinated by that, the things that you do. So one of the uh, clinical, you know, uh, we talked about uh, how do we identify these patients. One of the tests that 
we are working on, or, or one of the techniques Jay and I uh, and, and our colleagues uh, is this quantitative sensory testing. So again, you know, again, if we if we go back to the the neurosegmental uh, framework, um, as I showed earlier, the way we sensitize uh, experimentally is applying this capsation to the neurosegmentally linked dermatome. Well, at the same time, if we have a pathology in that neuromeric field, let's say of C56, we can also test that using quantitative sensory testing, specifically looking for temporal summation. And so there's a, uh, we're going to show this technique actually, uh, Jay um, and I, when we're there, um, and specifically pre and post needling, which is quite dramatic actually. So temporal summation is a, is a, is a substrate of, uh, of uh, central sensitization. So uh, patients with chronic pain demonstrate accelerating temporal summation, and you can, you can quantify this using our technique. So we're going to show this pre and post, which is quite uh, which dramatic. Is, that's right? what's so exciting, Vivek, and the audience, is mm -hmm. that we can show post changes. So it's not just that the perception of the patient, they feel better, because mm -hmm. usually they feel better because they love John's smile. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but what we want to show, I, I would actually I always say that I always say they love my smile, but I'm going to give John a little credit because I like his smile. So, uh, <laughs> but but John, but Vivek, we can actually show quantitatively again, and that is so powerful because it's not just a subjective; we can show objective, quantitative changes, and I think that's the the the, the advantage of people signing up for the workshop and learning all these techniques of assessment and the treatment. It is it is a psycho it's a psychophysical outcome measure, but it's better mm -hmm. it's better than the subjective outcomes yeah. that we're used to using. So so I think that's a good one. And, and Jay actually just referring to my uh, my faculty website where I still use my high school picture. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> my high school yearbook picture. That's... I refuse to change it. Yeah, that's that's how you never get older. For for me in our department, I got a picture from when I was forty five, and I'm sixty two now. So I just leave it up there. I'm not going to take another picture. <laughs> but I, I I'm not as greedy as he is. I'm not going back to high school. I'm just going back to my early forties. Um, gentlemen, we are uh, approaching uh, time, and uh, and I know that uh, Dr. Serbel has a train to catch. And so, uh, last question for you uh, before uh, we wrap up the episode. Um, you know. Uh, if I, if you were to put on your sort of future, uh, I'm a futurist type of hat, um, wh where do you see, you know, research or treatment, you know, five years from now, for example, when it comes to uh, this quite complicated uh, scenario that you've put in front of us? I have to say, okay, there's two, two parts to this question from me. I have to share with you, Vivek. Part of me is concerned that the pharmacologic, pharmaceutical industry is so powerful that the reason why this type of research doesn't get more attention is because it, there's no drug involved here. This is purely, you know, physical exam. It's use, utilizing non-pharmacologic treatments. Um, I, I am hopeful now that because of NIH, heal the the helping to end addiction long-term initiative that more monies will come to this. But I hope you in the audience can, and, and my physician colleagues in the audience can appreciate that, that there's this tendency to try to hit everything with a drug. And this is not a, a, you don't need to, you know, use a bazooka to kill a flea here. You know, you, you can be very selective. So part of me is a little pessimistic, but part of me is also optimistic because I think, 
the 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 public is going to demand this and they are they, they are they're they're you know they're running towards solutions that work and what works well a lot of the non-pharmacologic things work like you know massage and, and physical therapy and you know needling electrical stimulation manipulation all these things um so we hope that our research will stimulate more and more groups to to follow in our in our footsteps and and others footsteps not just our group but to start to to you know look at the mechanisms of this in a more robust way and, and look at other potential applications of it and perhaps uh, extrapolating to your point yeah. maybe uh somehow get reimbursement for uh, some of the methods that you're describing yes Exactly. That's a huge thing. That's right. I forgot to mention that. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Sobel, uh, what do you think? Five years from now, or maybe, you know, what are you, what are you excited about either from the research side of it or from the treatment side of, of, of the situation? Yeah. And I think, I think the important, uh, you know, the golden egg uh, in this field is really uh, developing um, techniques that are going to reliably and accurately quantify central sensitization. You know, the clinical manifestation of all disease uh, is really, uh, you know, founded on two two factors. One is the actual pathology, and second is the response within the nervous system. And so, if we can if we can identify and, and parse that out, um, we can then begin to I, first of all use it for diagnostic purposes, but second of all, uh, you know, tracking treatment progress and so on. I think it would be an extreme. I, I think it's the one area right now that's holding us back into a large extent in advancing certain areas of this field because we really can't reliably quantify it yet. We, I mean, we have some techniques, but uh, we don't have a gold standard, right? So we can't really develop the sensitivity and the specificity of these clinical techniques because there isn't a gold standard just yet. Do you have a sense yeah, of... Yeah, I think to that uh, point... Sorry, Dr. Shah, one second. Uh, just, I just have a very... The, the product manager hat in me is sort of like has a very intriguing question. <laughs> do you have a sense, Dr. Serval, that we could do this in a non-invasive manner? Well, that's a great question. Yeah, that's a very good question. I'm, I'm. Well, we'd have to ask AI that right. question. Fair enough. So maybe, <laughs> maybe that's a topic for another, uh, another day then. Yeah, I know. Uh, Doctor Shah, go ahead. Sir. Yeah. No, I was just going to quickly say that, um, uh, unfortunately, well, okay, there are a lot of uh, clinicians who only look at pain as sort of essentially being in the brain, and not looking at this the. The, the effects of inputs coming in from the periphery. And I think our research, what I'm hopeful for is it's really gonna demonstrate how important this is um, in terms of looking at sources of nociception and the role that they play in C-Sense. And what John talked about was how do we measure and measure that? So, um, and it's, it's really up to us as clinicians to um, listen to our patients, uh, believe our patients when they say that they're having pain and suffering and, you know, put the burden on us to try to understand why that's happening. Um, and that's what we hope to show in, in, in our lectures as well as in our workshop uh, from a practical standpoint as well as a theoretical standpoint. So I think uh, on that patient-centric note, uh, gentlemen, I'd like to thank you for your time. Uh, this has been a pleasure and uh, I look forward to uh, seeing you in person in Bangalore at the conference. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. I didn't know you were going to be there. Wonderful. <laughs> thank you. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.